Welcome to episode 111 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. This episode is take two of my conversation with the animal ethics legend Steve Zaponsis, this time with a better microphone. Steve is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at California State University, East Bay. He specializes in animal ethics, environmental ethics, and metaethics. He was co-founder in 1985 of the journal Between the Species and served as its initial co-editor. Steve was an American Philosophical Quarterly board member. In 1983, Steve founded with his wife Jean the Hayward Friends of Animals Humane Society, and they now operate Second Chance, helping the pets of people in need in California. Steve wrote the books Morals, Reason and Animals, and Subjective Morals, and edited Food for Thought, The Debate Over Eating Meat. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 110 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm fine, Jamie. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Great. Well, it's, it's wonderful to get the chance to have a second conversation. This is a little strange because we had our first attempt with a slightly dodgy microphone, so, but we're going to do a rerun today covering the same sort of question structure, and hopefully that will come across more strongly. Um, yeah, so thank you. Um, as you know, this is a series of conversations about, I guess, the two biggest philosophical questions, the two deepest philosophical questions what's real or how should we choose what to believe and what matters and who gets to matter in terms of ethics and morality. And I'm framing these conversations in the context of a recasting of the term sentientism. I'm, I'm framing that as a worldview that answers those two questions by saying, when it comes to epistemology, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason to try and form credences and beliefs. And when it comes to who gets to matter in our ethical system, we should focus on sentience and the capacity to have experiences, to have interests, um, and any being that can suffer, in short, should get to matter in our ethical system. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who both agree and disagree with that stance. And you, so much of your work has delved into the sort of dark heart of those two questions. So it's going to be great to understand your philosophical journey. But before we get to those questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? I was a professor of philosophy at the uh... East Bay campus of the California State University. East Bay refers to the east side of uh, San Francisco Bay. And I have uh, been retired since 1997. Um, had to retire a bit early because of uh, failing vision. But uh, that's what I did. I published a book, I think it was 1987, called Morals, Reason, and Animals. It was one of the early... Uh, earlier animal rights books and seemed to have gotten pretty well received. And then John Stockwell and I uh, founded a journal for discussing animal ethics issues primarily, had some uh, literature and also some environmental ethics in it. Um, it was called Between the Species. That was a title John uh, picked out in uh, from a, a previous little kind of homespun journal he had done 
with a mentor of his named George Abbey. But anyway, we uh, <laughs> edited that for, I guess, a, a decade or so. And then when I retired from uh, teaching, I also retired from edit editing that uh, journal. And uh, Joe Lynch, who's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, took it over. So those are the kind of my academic things I'm uh, known for. And my wife and I, uh, Jeannie, we founded a, uh, a volunteer program in the city of Hayward, where we lived, and uh, mainly to the start to help uh, develop a volunteer program for the animal shelter, and then it expanded into a wide range of animal welfare issues, some animal rights issues. And I um, believe that if one does uh, normative philosophy, ethics, moral philosophy, whatever you want to call it, then just sitting back in the uh, ivory tower and puffing on your pipe and theorizing uh, shows there's a little something lacking <laughs> in your commitment. And so I think it's important uh, to get out there and uh, you know put the values you espouse to effect and try to actually uh, help the animals that you say need to uh, get more help. So, so I guess, and we, we continue that program here. We live uh, in uh, the town of Fort Bragg, which is a bit north of San Francisco on the coast. And we now do a practical program here we call Second Chance, Helping the Pets of People in Need, a certainly an animal welfare sort of program, but we have a lot of low-income people here and their dogs are a very important part of their life. Indeed, sometimes they're their only family. So we spend our time uh, trying to help them uh, keep the dogs, be able to afford to keep the dogs and give the dogs good quality of life. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank that's you. That's where I am. <laughs> yeah. And I think many people who listen to and subscribe to this series will know of your work of being one of the, you know, the most seminal thinkers in the field of animal ethics. Um, in terms of the philosophical work you've done. Um, yeah, I think, I think it, well, it was kind of early. I mean, we got started, uh, I guess, in the uh, early 1980s, and say so did this book in 1987, but was publishing some articles and teaching some courses on uh, animal rights uh, at my university. And so, yeah, I was glad to uh, be one of the uh, the earlier people to get involved there and also glad that there are you know younger generations that have succeeded uh, me and the other uh, others to uh, keep the the ball rolling and helping the animals yeah and it, as you say it seems as though there is something in particular about the field of non-human animal ethics that draws people into some form of hands-on activism and involvement in the real world it's like you say it's quite hard to stay in an ivory tower i think once you've really emotionally and intellectually connected with the animal ethics topic so um yeah your your story is fascinating because you're still doing that hands-on work today but i guess we're going to start with another field that you've done work on that people might be less familiar with coming back to this question of what's real and how to believe and epistemology and the sort of journey people go through on their lives and for many of my guests that's a story about whether they grew up in i guess quite a scientific naturalistically minded household or society, or one that was more supernatural or religious or mystical, maybe, and how their thinking has changed over time, if it has, about what's real and how to form and hold beliefs. So that would be a fascinating part of your own journey. It'd be interesting to explore to, to get started. Okay, well, it is, um, 
a bit of a haphazard journey, let us say. Um, At uh, home, uh, you know, talk of those sorts of issues, right? Reality and epistemology and so forth was uh, not part of uh, what I grew up with. Both my parents were immigrants to the United States uh, uh, from war torn Europe after World War I. Both of them had no more than a high school education. They were uh, not, uh, as we say, they were focused when they came to the country and on uh, trying to make sure they had a living, could make a living. So, so a discussion of these philosophical issues really wasn't uh, a part of my upbringing, unfortunately, I guess. As far as um, Religion, my parents were very different there. My father came from Northern Greece, was uh, Greek Orthodox, but only nominally so. That was part of his heritage, and he valued and honored his heritage. And that was about it. I would guess that he did believe in uh, the God of the Bible. He uh, never really talked about it much. It wasn't a big issue for him. My mother, on the other hand, (laughs) who... um, was orphaned after World War I and uh, went to a, a Methodist uh, orphanage in uh, southern France and then was brought over here from the orphanage. Was was really quite religious, very definitely uh, go to church every Sunday. And when I was a child, take me to Sunday school uh, every Sunday and was you know, quite interested in religion. Then when I was, uh, I know, I must have been. 10 years old, not much more than that, 10 years old. She, uh, through a friend, became introduced or was introduced to a, uh, what we would call a cult today. It was something called the Order of the Cross, which was founded by an Anglican uh, minister. I guess that's the right term, minister. Uh, the Reverend J. Todd Ferrier, I believe, who lived in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century and developed this very lengthy a mystical reinterpretation of the Bible. And it's called the Herald of the Cross. I remember my mother had at least 30 plus volumes of it. Say It was very long. And she really got quite taken up with that and uh, wanted me to uh, go to the, the services there too, which I did for a while. But I was never interested in religion. never appealed to me. I can remember even going... When I went to the uh, Sunday school, the Methodist church, making little signals, (laughs) very rude of me, really, little hand signals to another one of the kids there that what the teacher was saying about the story of Noah was really nuts. And it was, I say, rude of me. He was an earnest young man who was trying to be a good father and be a productive member of his community, and I should not have uh, been so... uh, disparaging of what he had to say, but, you know, it just never appealed to me. The one thing about the Order of the Cross, though, that uh, did stick with me, and I was, you know, I was even less interested in mystical reinterpretation, but, but the one thing that did stick with me is that the, uh, the members of this order uh, believed in the transmigration of souls, which is something the Pythagoreans also believed in. And that was the idea that the soul that is in a human body can be reborn in a uh, non-human animal body, and vice versa. It can go either direction. 
so that they were vegetarians for that reason, because uh, killing and eating an animal was tantamount to cannibalism, since what's really uh, crucially bad about uh, eating a human being was not the species identification, but the fact that there was a soul there and you were cutting short the soul's uh, life that it needed in this, uh, this world. And so uh, doing that when the soul was in the pig's body or a lamb's body or whatever would uh, you know, be basically the same evil. So she was a vegetarian and I could see from her example that uh, the standard story, which was certainly current uh, where I was growing up in the 1950s, uh, that, uh, oh, you couldn't survive without meat. You know, you couldn't live a healthy life unless you ate uh, some you know, beef or lamb or chicken or whatever every day, uh, which is not true. My mother did quite well. She lived to be 90 years old and her health was uh, really quite good. So uh, that showed me that the you know, vegetarianism was an option. And also my father as well as my mother both really liked animals. We always had pets and I liked them too. And I just didn't see any need to kill them for something that was totally unnecessary. So that's the part, I guess, from my early, you know, upbringing that really stuck with me and kind of pointed me on the way to uh, later involvement with uh, animal rights philosophy and so forth. Yeah, maybe that was, the, that was the seed for your later work. Yeah, yeah. A friend of hers got introduced to this uh, little religion. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what showed me that you could really be a vegetarian, not have to sacrifice your health or really any pleasure, although going to a restaurant back in the 1950s, a vegetarian in uh, you know, the Mountain West was, <laughs> were many options that were available. <laughs> yeah. that. Even for cooking at home, there weren't many options as far as protein stuff. Now there are lots and lots of... It's a different things. world now, isn't it? Yeah. And, and originally you talked about just not feeling any particular interest in any of these varieties of religion. And was that because... You just didn't see anything intellectually coherent about them or they didn't strike you as true or was it the you know the ritual and the performance that wasn't particularly interesting to you or was it as you in, implied with you know the flood and noah was were there some ethics there that you thought hold on this just doesn't feel right why don't you think any of those things hooked you into a religious frame of mind i guess just because there's a say with my rude little uh, sun one Sunday morning there, it just struck me as nonsense. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, the idea that somehow you were going to save all the animals in the world by getting, uh, you know, a pair of each and they'd all fit onto the single boat. And, um, you know, what I was learning in school about a little geography and science, that was just nonsense. It didn't, it was just a story. And uh, I thought some of, sometimes stories were nice. When I went to, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church with my father uh, for Christmas and Easter. That's the two times we went. I really enjoyed the ritual, actually. I thought that was very nice. Enjoyed the music and the icons and the incense and everything. But that was just an aesthetic sort of uh, pleasure. But uh, I never particularly felt any need to think that there was some 
divine being for whom I was uh, extra special and who had a program for my life or uh, who was governing the course of the world and making sure that everything would work out for the best in the end. I never felt any need for that, nor looking around me did I see any evidence of that, frankly. Yeah. And we often in these conversations focus on religion just because it's the most obvious example, I guess, of supernatural thinking. But there are lots of different types of you know, supernatural belief people can hold as well. Were you ever tempted by any other sort of uh, versions of supernatural or mystical thinking, whether it be you know, paranormal, parapsychology, you know, homeopathy, or just a more general sense of the transcendent or the spiritual or there being things beyond the natural world? Or are you sort of pretty firm naturalist evidence and reason all the way. I was never tempted by any of those things. I, I know there, you know, there are a number of other, uh, you know, like pantheism and so forth, and the idea that uh, God is not a being separate from the universe, but is the principle of order and goodness in the universe and things of that sort. I really uh, never found them particularly, oh, some felt uh, you know, that they were satisfying a need I had. And also, um, I've always, I guess, been just by nature committed to the idea that uh, one should believe things that one has evidence for. And if there is no evidence for something, or if you know, the evidence is against it, then uh, you, know, you don't believe those sorts of things. Uh, uh, William James had something he called the will to believe, which is very interesting proposition that if uh, believing something that is not contrary to the evidence makes you feel better and aids you in your way in the world, then what's wrong with uh, believing it? To which Bertrand Russell answered, that's immoral. You know, it's just immoral to believe something just because it makes you feel good, uh, that we ought to stick to believing those things for which we have some reason, some evidence to believe it. And I guess I've always, by nature, just been going down that road. Yeah, makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Well, let's come on to the second big question about uh, what matters and ethics and who gets to matter. And again, it's quite hard to draw a clear line between these topics. Some people like to do that. There's a sort of is-ought distinction. I think they're a bit more interestingly linked and meshed together in a way. And you touched on it already when you were talking about you, your mother's decision to go vegetarian because actually of a supernatural belief about reincarnation. And that, you know, that has much in common with many of the Eastern religions where, where you see vegetarianism or veganism appearing in some of the Eastern religions. Often that's from a lim- linked belief. It's a sense that there's reincarnation and souls. And you know, if you're eating a non-human animal, there's a risk you're eating your own grandmother. So that's where the ethics come from. It's not, it's not necessarily from a compassion for that individual animal. It's for a different reason. But so it'll be interesting to come back to that because that was the seed, but I think you ended up in a different place. But for people with a naturalistic way of thinking, like you or me, there's an obvious question, which is okay, where does your ethics come from? So again, that would be an interesting journey to understand as you've gone through your life. Firstly, you know, how do you have you come to think about ethics and what's right and wrong? And then we'll come on to the question of who gets to count in our moral scope. But if we start with, you know, some sort of grounding of ethics or how you think about ethics and morality, how's that changed over your life? Okay, well, uh, as I said, at home, uh, these intellectual issues are not 
much a matter of discussion. Um, when I went to high school, we had what were called advanced placement classes. They were just starting out then in the early 1960s. And we had a, uh, an advanced placement English class at my school. The very first year they had one, they hired a teacher just for that. And so he had plenty of time to try to uh, introduce uh, the class of I don't know, 25 or so uh, to uh, literature, including philosophy. A lot of it was philosophical literature and you know, plays and so forth. And that started me really uh, kind of thinking about those issues. I enjoyed that class a lot. He was a very good teacher. Rodney Fye was his name. And I enjoyed those classes. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that started me thinking about these sorts of issues. Uh, and then, but when I went to, away to college, I went to a university, Rice University, which is particularly noted for math and science and engineering. And I was in that category. But again, kind of haphazard here. Uh, the teachers of my English and history courses were much better uh, personable, <laughs> uh, stimulating than those of my chemistry, physics, and calculus classes. That's what you had to take as a freshman at Rice at that time. You know, those five courses and that's it. Your only choice was American or European history. But anyway, um, the uh, English teacher I had in particular was interested not so much in improving our grammar or spelling or whatever, but introducing us to the big ideas of literature down the ages, and a lot of those are philosophical. So because of her example, her name was Barbara Bartholomew, as I recall, and her, I switched over my sophomore year to the uh, humanities division of the university and took a lot of uh, philosophy there. So we did a lot of history of philosophy, and I was introduced to you know, the classical theories of ethics, as well as the medieval. One of my favorite teachers was quite a medievalist. We didn't exactly see eye to eye <laughs> on a lot of that, but he, you know, was a very stimulating teacher. And then, you know, the modern periods with the utilitarianism, Kantianism, and so forth. So that's how that developed. And when I went on to graduate school, I went on in existentialism and phenomenology. And that, of course, has very strong, the existentialism in particular has a very strong ethical component to it and a very strong naturalistic uh, human decision uh, sort of uh, uh, component to it, where the existence of the mind or the human being precedes any sort of essence or divinely given uh, characteristic which defines who we are. We define who we are ourselves by making our yeah. own way in the world. It's up and to us. So that I think is really tied into ethics. And then uh, when I started out teaching, uh, those were the areas which I was hired to teach. And I did some publishing of that and taught it, but I was kind of running out my cord, so to speak, on that. You know, it wasn't interesting. And then Somebody, I forget whom, told me, well, you know, there are some uh, philosophers who were, you're a vegetarian, there are some philosophers who are starting to espouse it. There's this Australian, uh, Peter Singer, who's written a book about this. And I said, oh, well. So I uh, got the book and read it and said, well, here's something that's really a personal interest to me and something I can do professionally too, because I think there's a lot more beyond the straightforward utilitarianism to say about those issues. And so I got involved uh, with, uh, you know, 
my careers in animal liberation, animal rights uh, that way. Again, totally haphazard. It's amazing how much that happens in our lives uh, is due to a chance acquaintance or a mention that somebody has or a movie you see or book you read, something like that. Yeah. And I'm interested in how your thinking about non-human animals shifted, because it sounds like um, you adopted vegetarianism because your mother was vegetarian. She adopted vegetarianism really because of a uh, religious reason. So it, I, I'd imagine that you started just because that's what she was doing and you went along with it. Um, and then later on, when you started getting into the academic side of animal ethics, no doubt you were much more sort of formalized about why you included non-humans in your moral scope as well. But at what point, how did that shift through even your childhood and you grew up? Did, uh, was there a mix of a sort of compassion for the non-human animal themselves that Oh yeah. So came in said, at, how did that how did that play into the story and how did that develop to the point where you started to actually work on the philosophy? Well, as I said, you know, my mother uh, showed me that uh, one did not need to kill and eat animals in order to uh, live a healthy life. And, you know, that could have just washed over me, except that I really did like animals. You know, I said we always had pets. I've had uh, had a dog from my earliest memories had a series of dogs and uh, uh, even my father who had no compunction about eating animals uh, you know would like to take me out go horseback riding and you know had a pet lamb for a time he built a, a coop so I could have some uh, pet pigeons and rabbits at other times so I always really cared about the animals it never occurred to me that they were just little machines that had yeah. no feelings a la Descartes or that they were they were items that were placed on the earth uh, with no value of their own, but only to serve the purpose of satisfying our needs, all Aristotle. Uh, they were, you know, they were my friends. They were uh, feeling little beings. They responded to me, I thought. I certainly responded to them. So, you know, I always had that there. And then when it came, say, you know, following reading Animal Liberation to thinking about it on a more rigorous uh, philosophical level, uh, that basis for, you know, you know, why bother? Why bother? Because these are suffering little beings who are made, being made to suffer a great deal for no good reason. And um, I guess I've always felt, and I still believe, that kind of the most basic principle of uh, morality is not to inflict suffering, not to cause suffering for no good reason. Seems like a pretty strong baseline. And it's and it's interesting because I think that's something that I think most human children would agree with, you know, as you did. We we understand intuitively that non-human animals can be companions, can be friends, they have their own experiences, you know, and it just feels bad to cause them to suffer needlessly. Um, and then you can draw that through to, you know, Jeremy Bentham and Singer and your own work, and you can formalize it. But I think it's almost something that most humans start off with. And then unfortunately, most humans are then trained out of in some way and taught that it's you know it's actually normal even required to do those things so it's an interesting mix you have that i guess a fairly normal compassion for and sense of empathy with other non-human animals your mother showed you it was possible to you know live healthily without consuming them your father didn't have a particular you know there was no drive to train you into animal agriculture and animal products and you know that that was how you started yeah yeah, I think he was kind of disappointed that I didn't follow in his uh, tradition as he had followed in his father's tradition. 
as far as how to regard animals and so forth. Um, yeah. But he was not one who tried to beat his will into me or something. <laughs> one of those kinds of miserable fathers. He was very easy, easygoing, very kind man. Yeah, yeah. And and so w- one of the things I've tried to do when I'm talking about sentientism, in a way, it comes back to the statement you made that the you know the essence of morality is trying not to needlessly cause suffering to others. And almost by definition, if a being has the capacity to suffer, i.e. they are sentient, they warrant compassion and moral consideration. So it almost draws that moral scope by definition based on the capacity to have experiences to suffer and to flourish. But I've tried to suggest that we should use the term in quite a pluralistic way that is very open about which ethical system you then apply to that. So to my mind, you can have a sort of sentiocentric moral scope and apply maybe a feminist care ethic or a relational approach or a sort of Christine Korsgaard style of Kantianism um, that sees non-humans as ends in themselves, not just humans. Or you can take you know, a broader deontological approach that thinks about kindness to all. Or you can follow the more sort of singer approach that you talked about of more of a utilitarian approach. So in a way, it's it's keeps the door quite open for different ethical systems, as long as we grant moral consideration to every sentient being. Um, So your first, I guess, introduction to formal animal ethics was through, I guess, the utilitarianism of singer. How have you developed your thinking about you know, what sort of different types of ethical systems we should then apply when we're thinking about right and wrong and good and bad. Right. Um, back then, like in the early 80s, 40 years ago now, I was really very much a Kantian. I really did admire Kant. I liked the formal rigor of his thinking. I liked his, uh, you know, really logical devotion to logical clarity, conceptual analysis, and so forth. So, uh, and some of my first writings, like I, I wrote a, a uh, an article uh, in the early 80s called Are Animals Moral Beings? And what it did was try to deal with the question of place of animals uh, in uh, <laughs> ethics uh, from a more Kantian point of view, not a strictly utilitarian point of view. And so I've all I've I've been uh, very eclectic ever since. I mean, I don't reject utilitarianism. I think utilitarianism is uh, a lot going for it. But I think the Kantian idea of uh, uh, respect for individual individuality, I guess, is a good counterbalance to uh, utilitarianism, which can. Uh, tend to subordinate individual well-being to uh, a group or mass well-being. One of the standard you know, problems as pointed out with utilitarianism. But I've, uh, and I guess this ties into what I said earlier about my thinking that if we're going to do moral philosophy, we ought to be practicing that we ought to be out in the world trying to uh, make the world a better place and not just talk about uh, how it might be a better place. Uh, I've always uh, had a kind of historical perspective on morality. I think if, you know we can't just simply say, aha, as the old uh, um, graduate <laughs> joke went, at last the truth, here it is, the ethical theory, you know, everything you guys have been mucking around with for all these years, not quite right, but here I finally got the system for you, and we just need to follow this out. And frankly, that's kind of the way utilitarianism 
was born. I mean, utilitarianism tried to do a science, a science of ethics to replace the, the humdrum and the hodgepodge and whatever. And uh, I think that in order to really make a difference, have a moral theory that's not just a theory, you need to build on history and not try to figure that you're going to replace it. And there are strong Kantian elements in common sense morality. There are strong utilitarian elements. There are, of course, religious elements. I'm not above using the religious argument if that's what it takes to convince somebody to do a better job of treating animals. Um, and you try to you know, keep in mind the, the basic goal, which is to uh, not inflict suffering unnecessarily. And by suffering, I, I mean to uh, not just suffering pain, but suffering the loss of possible happiness. Um, but in order to you know, pursue that goal, then you try to see, well, you know, why are people resistant to it? So I said back in the 1950s, in Utah, where I was growing up, uh, they resisted it. The automatic answer you would get is, you're going to die. You're going to die if you don't eat animals. And so you say, well, let me show you. You know, you don't, you're not going to die. Lots of people who are vegetarians, who live healthy lives, et cetera, et cetera. And if there are other you know, people who talk about, uh, uh, you know, it's human happiness that counts, not animal happiness. And well, why? You know, should your pleasure you get from eating something be so much uh, worth more than what the pleasure an animal can get by eating something or lying in the sun or whatever? Maybe you have intellectual uh, talents and capacities and therefore pleasures that the animal doesn't. But how does that make your simple pleasures worth more than the animals? Uh, and, you know, you, you try to deal with the obstacles to making the world a better place that you encounter where you are with the people you're dealing with. And uh, that's the way I have always proceeded. So although, say, I had rather a good deal more Kantian tendencies than Singer had, I nonetheless, uh, you know, um, integrated them, tried to integrate them into a more comprehensive philosophy and not just Kantian. Kantianism obviously has you know some really terrible problems with it too that uh, you know if you uh, if you want to hire a babysitter you should hire one who is sorely tempted to kill your children because then you can count and if he's an ethical person you are reinforcing the strength of his will and that's what's really important is you know that things are done for the right reason and no sometimes that's what's important is what the right reason, but sometimes just doing the right thing. And it's the consequence that counts, uh, not the, uh, the motivation for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So you come to a, 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 a more pluralistic approach and one that's, I guess, quite pragmatic and yes. can use different. I like the pragmatist a lot. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So this question of moral scope, you've, in a way you defined it by your primary interested in, you know, suffering and flourishing, which as, as you say, I don't think of narrowly as sort of just pain and pleasure. I think they're all, if you like, and any valenced experience. So suffering can be, you know, a sense of existential angst or a sense of loss or worry or anxiety, as well as physical pains and flourishing can be the happiness of being in a, a loving family unit or excitement or as well as physical pleasures as well. So I think of them in quite broad terms, but in a sense, that focus draws your moral scope really around 
sentient beings, because by definition, sentient beings are the ones that can experience those things. And I guess there's there's traditionally been at least two challenges to a sentiocentric stance. One is to push back and say, no, only humans matter. You know, we should have an anthropocentric stance and, and so on. And you and I would disagree with that simply on the basis that non-humans can suffer and flourish too. And there's no non-arbitrary reason to exclude them. But there's another challenge as well. And I think one of the first times the word sentientism was used was actually as a criticism by John Rodman in 1977. And he was pushing back on Singer and others and eventually on you and saying, look, sentientism is just another form of discrimination because you're discriminating against non-sentient biology and plants and rocks and rivers and ecosystems and habitats. And, you know, why, why shouldn't we extend even further to a biocentrism or an ecocentrism? So what's your thought about going beyond sentience when it comes to moral consideration? Well, I think a lot of the environmental ethics, there's John Rodman, you know, Holmes Ralston, uh, Baird Calicott and so forth, Aldo Leopold, uh, is again, uh, uh, well, I like the term nonsense, I guess. Uh, that was a positive <laughs> term for you know, uh, literal nonsense, you know, people saying things they don't really understand what they're saying. Um, let me back off a little bit. The, I think the basis for all values that we are aware of uh, is uh, sentience. You know, it's, it's feeling better or worse about something. It's having positive and negative feelings. And I don't, the only proof I have for that is an old uh, Jungian thought experiment. You know, imagine a world in which there are no sentient beings, nothing that has feelings of pleasure and pain, the whole gamut of them. Okay. Nor is there any possibility that those kind of beings could ever come into that world. Okay. So imagine that world now change something in it. Doesn't matter, you can change the speed of light, you can change the force of gravity, you can change the color of the sky, whatever. Doesn't matter, just change something. That... Now, which world is better? The one that you originally imagined or the changed one? And it doesn't really matter what your answer is. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is uh, all right, explain to me why it's better, but don't refer to any sentient experience. You know, try to explain to me why say the changed world is better than the one you originally imagined, but don't refer to any experience that any sentient being ever has of happiness or fulfillment or dissatisfaction or sadness or whatever. And you can't do it. As far as I know, I've never seen anybody be able to do it. And so I, that's the only proof I have this idea that the values really originate with sentience. So there's no prejudice in saying that if we're going to talk about values, we start with sentient beings and we go from there. Now, certainly um, ecosystems, biotic communities, the diversity of natural species and so forth are all important, but they're important to the proliferation of sentient beings. It's the sentient beings in nature that make nature valuable. And without them, uh, there wouldn't be, you know, any value. And I, again, uh, that doesn't deny there's tremendous value to nature. It doesn't deny that there's tremendous importance in preserving the environment and understanding that we can't just run roughshod over natural orders and so forth. 
But all these environmental concerns, ultimately, not at every you know gas for every sentence, um, ultimately have to be tied back to the effect they have as material or cause or structure or opportunity or whatever for improving the quality of life of sentient beings. You know, it's not it's not a prejudice to point that out. I'm not evaluating a sentient. You're saying that's the way it is. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a matter of fact that the values come from sentient experiences. And therefore, that's going to be the basis, the ultimate basis of any value system that you're going to come up with. And say it doesn't mean that you can't do a tremendous amount of environmental uh, improvement in the thinking that we've had traditionally about the environment. It just says that that's not the the fundamental thing. Um, yeah, and in a sense, I've, I've jokingly described it almost as the only moral form of discrimination because the beings or the entities we're excluding don't care because they have no interest. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, that's it, the thing. You know, that's the thing too. You know. Uh, Tell me why the rock feels better when it is a rock before the drip of the water on it made it a bunch of rocks, you know. Is that, <laughs> again, that would be one of those changes in the human experience. I mean, how is one better than the other for the rock or the rocks, whichever you're going to look at from the perspective of the start, the perspective of the, uh, the conclusion there? It really is. It's not that. And we talk about, you know, a flourishing uh, ecosystem. You know, we have certain uh, goals that we have in mind for it, but the, the ecosystem, if it ceases to flourish, you know, as climate changes and so forth, and natural cycles gone, the nature itself has no, no concern, no feelings, no preferences about that at all. Absolutely. And it did fine before we came on the scene as well, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, think- in some ways, you know, in some ways, if, you know, if you want to be an environmentalist and say we should do that, which maximizes the diversity in nature, say, okay, well, let's start by poisoning all human beings because yeah. we're the biggest threat to the diversity of nature, at least at, uh, we say, a kind of macroscopic level. And, you know, you could make, I guess, a fairly good case that insects might be the biggest threat to diversity of nature ultimately. Yeah, potentially so, yeah. But and I agree. I think that the the thought experiment you laid out. It's interesting how people answer that because the answer nearly always comes back to a human aesthetic appreciation for the way we want nature to be. It's not really about a concern for the environment itself at all. It, it's it really is just another version of anthropocentrism. And and I think that comes through strongly because I think a sentientist stance on the environment and a ecocentrist stance have a lot in common because we both care about the ecosystem and the environment and the non-sentient stuff too, but for slightly different reasons. But I think it is important because the motivation is important because you can see the sorts of actions that might flow from those different sets of values. Because as you mentioned, you know, at the dark, the darker end of the environmental movement is, you know, can almost get to sort of eco-fascism that sees so much value in nature that it's actually worth harming humans and other sentient beings to allow nature to flourish and and you know an eco-fascism is probably an extreme end of that but you can see even in mainstream conservation movements the willingness to cull vast quantities of sentient beings for the health of a population or of an ecosystem again is is very stark whereas if you take a you know a sentientist view of a flourishing environment 
you would not go down those paths. You might still find some difficult choices you have to face, but you would do so with a compassion for each of the sentient beings in that environment and that depend upon it. Um, and I think the other big difference that you can see is a sentientist stance has a rich concern for our environment, but it also has a very clear stance about the farming of sentient animals. Whereas most people who profess a biocentrist or ecocentrist stance, most of them seem to have a very rich concern for the environment, but almost no concern for farmed animals, the way we treat sentient beings within our sphere of power and control. Um, so again, it just sort of under, undermines their supposed <laughs> generous moral scope and just makes it very clear that really underneath a lot of it is quite narrowly human concern. So I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, let's care about the environment, but for the right reason, because of the sentient beings. Yeah. Right. I, uh, you know, a few things occurred to me while you were speaking. One is, I think it was John Rodman who actually admitted at one point that uh, there are a bunch of us who think that this stage in natural evolution has particular value and that we should do all we can to preserve it. And I thought, well, there you spilled the beans, John. That's uh, pretty clear what you're up to. Uh, and then there's also some of you. I think it's Holmes Ralston who talks about having to kill deer in order to preserve an endangered species of lichen or something like that in a meadow. I thought, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, your, that's your preference. And you like diversity. You like the idea that nature has all these myriad possibilities to it. And you are quite willing to sacrifice uh, individual suffering beings to preserve what you want, you know, that, that diversity to it. And I think the third thing that occurred to me, I think it was uh, Baird Calicott who referred to farm animals as somehow uh, cripples. And why should we be worried about preserving, you know, and the, the lives of these cripples? Uh, well, we should concentrate on, uh, you know, nature, not on these deformities, these monstrosities. Uh, and he, I think he said that what's really wrong with uh, factory farming is it's monstrous uh, that we've created these sorts of animals and, and uh, they're just, you know, a counter to what nature would do. No, it's monstrous because you've got all these terribly suffering beings who are there for our economic and uh, other trivial pleasures. Yeah, that's incredible. I hadn't come across that line of argument before, but in a way it in an insidious sense, makes sense. Because if you value nature, i.e. things that humans aren't involved in, then you can look at the farmed animals and say, they're not part of nature because us humans have created them. Therefore, they have no value. It's like... <laughs> so, yeah, well, they even have negative value because... Yeah, because they're non-natural. So we spoil nature. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like an extreme version of victim blaming. Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing, yeah. So uh, there's, there's one other topic which even many people who are you know, with us in the animal advocacy and maybe vegan movements also still struggle with. Again, you made a really early important contribution to, which is thinking about um, non-human animals in the wild. There is a school of thought amongst many vegans, for example, that what we need to do is to boycott products and processes where humans cause harm to non human sentient beings in whatever form that might be, you know, fishing, farming, dairy, um, egg production, 
production of uh, products, clothing, you know, whatever it is, right? So, so the, the core of that movement, which is what I'm part of and I support, is, is trying to boycott and end human-caused suffering to non-human sentient beings, and I wholeheartedly support it. But quite a few people within that movement, when you ask them about the moral salience of the suffering of non-human animals in the wild, will say, well, you know, in a way, that's not our problem that's part of nature and nature is good. You know, I'm, we, we walk away at that point. That suffering doesn't, doesn't count to me or isn't salient. Um, and I know you, in your 1987 book, you wrote a, an in, really interesting chapter about, you know, should we save the rabbit from the fox? So it'd be interesting to know your thoughts on, you know, wild animal suffering and, you know, how that developed around that time and your thoughts on it now, because it's a contentious topic, even amongst animal advocates today. Yes, I gather it is still uh and maybe even a growing uh, uh, part of the discussion. Um, I think moral rules are rules aimed at human beings. Moral rules are, like so many other artifacts, they are things that human beings create. And uh, I think Aristotle was quite right. When you want to understand uh, a human product, one of the four things you need to understand about it is what, what is the purpose? You know, what was the goal that was being aimed at by creating this sort of thing? And I think that the moral principles, values, institutions, so forth, were created in order to try to combat human selfishness. Uh, what the reading I've done in anthropology and so forth is that uh, we have, as Dawkins would like to say, the selfish gene, although that's also logical nonsense. Uh, but we also have what E.O. Uh, Wilson called you know, sociobiology, that we have a, a definite need, uh, both by in order to foster our young and in order to fulfill our psychological, uh, intellectual capacities and actually lead better quality lives, to live with other people. So if we are irremediably selfish, unless uh, you know, we're strong enough to think we can get away with any, doing anything we want and get everything we want the way maybe Putin and Trump seem to think they can at this point. Uh, and most of us don't have that delusion, fortunately. Um, unless, you know, we can do it, we have to get along with other people. Therefore, we have a strong motivation to encourage our uh, non-selfish instincts. We are quite capable as, a, as beings of being made happy by the happiness of others, being made sad by the sadness of others, suffering when we see others suffer and so forth. And But those uh, those feelings and the motivation that comes from them tends to be weaker than our uh, pleasure at eating, you know, taking the whole box of cookies for ourselves. And so our brother's crying, well, to heck with him. I get the whole box of cookies. You know, you get, you have that sort of selfishness. And I think purpose and morality has been to try to reinforce the, uh, the uh, other-centered feelings, the generous sentiments, as you would say, that we have. And therefore, uh, moral rules are not meant to tell you know, wolves how they should behave toward rabbits. They're made to tell us how we should behave toward other animals. And I do uh, agree that you know, nature is not beautiful thing. I mean, in some ways it is, but in other ways it is red in tooth and claw and it's a very nasty place. It, uh, we can do some, 
to try to mitigate that because there is a lot of suffering out there in nature. It's not that the wolf is doing anything wrong. That's his nature. That is, you know, how he's going to survive or she's going to survive. And that's just the way nature is, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, we, uh, we can uh, <clears throat> and are, I think, morally obligated by our basic moral principle you know, not to have or permit even, not to necessarily to cause, but even to permit suffering unnecessarily, we do have an obligation to try to uh, minimize suffering where we can. Now, the idea that somehow we should go out into nature and stamp out predation is uh, a different kind of nonsense, a practical nonsense. It's just, you know, preposterous to think that we would make the world a better place by even coming close to doing that, even thinking we could come close to doing that is uh, delusional, I think. But where we can ease animal suffering in the wild, I think we should. That's you know, part of trying the basic moral uh, outlook. So uh, you know, if you have your cat running around in the garden, put a bell on it. It shouldn't be out there chomping on birds. If you see, uh, you know, there's uh, just talking in the news this morning about a terrible blizzard in the Dakotas. Well, the animals are out there starving. You can drop hay for them. You can spend some of our resources to try to see that they uh, don't go hungry and don't starve to death and so forth. And if you have uh, other opportunities to, um, you know, do your bit, uh, even beyond what you are, you know, immediately responsible for in the sense of, you know, creating suffering, that you can uh, protect against it. But I don't, there's no, that I'm aware of, I have one thing, I think this one thing, uh, John was upset about me too, that, that I say, well, you know, since we can't really make nature a better place, that's why we shouldn't be out there interfering with predation. He said, aha, yeah, I knew you were one of those, you know, you're not valuing nature itself, you're just letting it go because of, you know, your other concerns. Uh, and, you know, that, that is my, my take on it, is that, uh, you know, we should try to mitigate the suffering in the world where we can do it effectively. And, you know, you also have to, when you think of those sorts of issues, have to think about, well, it's going to take you a certain amount of time certain amount of energy, a certain amount of money, and so forth, is going out there and trying to uh, corral all the Bengal tigers that might be preying on, you know, some, uh, I don't know, oryx or whatever in, in this uh, environment, and, you know, taking them out so the oryx are not prey animals, they don't have to be worried about being jumped on by a lion or leopard or tiger or whatever. Uh, is that the best use of your resources to make uh, minimize suffering or would it be better for you to uh, you know develop courses like you're doing here where you introduce people to the idea that the animals that are firmly under our control and where we can definitely determine whether uh, they are suffering or not that we try to make sure we develop alternatives like you know plant-based burgers and whatever uh, to minimize the uh, the suffering that we are more directly inflicting on animals ourselves. Yeah, thank you. And I think the important thing for me is to recognize the challenge of those questions about priority and about the risks of human hubris 
and our lack of knowledge of complex ecosystems and our I think it's absolutely fair to be skeptical about the nature of human intervention generally, given we don't have a great history of the effect of our interventions. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, lead us astray a lot too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think people underestimate how much we're already intervening in the wild. It's not a question of should we intervene or not. It's a question of we, are, we already, already are. Um, but I think the important thing for me is to take all of those challenges very seriously, but not use them as an excuse for excluding wild animals from our moral consideration. So I think we should be very solid that all sentient beings matter and all suffering matters. But then absolutely, we should be quite prudent and cautious and skeptical of us humans when we're thinking about you know, what and how to intervene. And I think there are some quite practical, you know, low risk interventions, you mentioned some, you know, feeding, vaccination programs, people are looking at uh, wildlife pathways, there are, you know, other low risk ways that we can help wild animals have better lives and then there's some yeah crazier stuff <laughs> about gene drives and you know re-engineering predators and so on that uh, it might need a little bit more caution so or a right. lot of caution yes yeah. right i totally yeah. agree with you yeah yeah thank you well so we've answered those two questions of you know how to go about believing and what and who gets to matter and i think we probably have quite a lot in common we have a naturalistic way of thinking and we have a ethic that draws its boundary based on sentience but most people on the planet so far disagree with us in one sense or another um, and it's odd because i think most people most of the time are quite naturalistic but then they do have some very clear strong supernatural beliefs that can also warp their ethics in dangerous ways and while most people i think intuitively do have compassion for other sentient beings most of them through you know social norm indoctrination have been trained to think that needlessly harming and killing them is a completely natural normal necessary thing to do so it's, it's it's a little weird because i think in a sense most eight billion humans have quite a lot in common with our worldview but at the same time some very radical differences that have some difficult effects so in that strange context uh, the final question is how do you think about the future and uh, how optimistic are you about our ability to make the world better both for us humans but also for non-human sentience yes i think uh Especially right now, it's hard to be really optimistic about the future of the human race, given what's going on in Ukraine and the, uh, the reactionary right-wing anti-democratic uh, politics that's you know, proliferating in the United States and other, other places as well. So just on that level, we may not uh, uh, have time you know, to get to these uh, more generous questions if we end up blowing ourselves up with nuclear weapons and then there's of course the environmental uh, catastrophe that's looming and that uh, we don't seem willing to uh, give up our uh, muscle cars in order to uh, elongate the span of, of human life and other life on this world and one, one, of, one of my previous one of my previous guests answered this question by saying he was quite optimistic about the long term but he just wasn't sure we'll get there. <laughs> that <what> <laughs> was quite a nice way of putting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I would have been much more optimistic. Optimistic, but given what's going on and in the the world in general, and the rise of autocracy over democracy is very, very troubling. Uh, so, 
it would be nice if there were a nice uh, fatherly figure out there making sure that it'll all work out well in the end, uh, as long as the end isn't too far off uh, and too costly to get there. But anyway, there, there isn't. Um, as to um, um, you know, the future specifically regarding animals here, uh, I was interested, one of your previous guests you know, that I've listened to said that he thought the the three to five, speaking in the United States, the three to 5% of the population is vegan. That's, I don't know, amazing to me. I don't know that I know that many vegans uh, that uh, certainly three to 5% of the people I know would not be vegan, uh, but um, you know, well and good. I hope that's true. I think that you know, there is, as you say, I think there is this native compassion ability to sympathize and care about the well-being of others in human psychology and that it extends not just to our own babies or our own families or our own tribe which is where it has this uh, evolutionary importance for us but it, it's, a, it's a general ability that extends far beyond that and that if we can stop trying to stomp it down uh, and say, well, you got to toughen the kid up uh, and, you know, make them less compassionate. That it, it could do uh, a lot more than that, you know, following these compassionate motivations could be a lot stronger uh, than they have been. I don't, unfortunately don't see at the moment that there is a, a whole lot of extra force especially over what was going on 20, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. There isn't that much extra force behind that today. I wish there was. Uh, I would like to encourage it. And uh, you know, in some pockets there are, but in other, you know, hopefully they're just pockets. It's, it's really not counter to that. I think, um, and then, you know, there are other things that we, we haven't talked about that have to be considered. It's, uh, for example, uh, like um, eating meat. In this uh, uh, news story I mentioned, I heard this morning about terrible blizzards in the uh, uh, in the Dakotas. Here, they were interviewing a rancher there who was talking about you know what he had to do to try to preserve his herd. Of course, you know cattle to be slaughtered ultimately. Um, but uh, this is something too, by the way, that R.G. Fry used to like to emphasize that you know you would have to change not only a simple practice but a whole culture in order to make serious inroads against eating meat, like this rancher you know, on the Dakotas. You know, his, his, this ranch has been in his family for several generations. This is the way they live. This is, this, is all, this is the world they know. And if you're going to take away that uh, income by being a, a cattle rancher, you're going to change an awful lot, and uh, you're going to have to give a lot of support to these cultural changes that you are requiring of people. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. You know, it's just like you had to make a lot of cultural changes for people to get rid of slavery. Uh, but it does mean that you have to be cognizant of what a big task it is. So I tend to, again, I mean, my, just my pragmatic, practical uh, dent to emphasize doing the things we can do and trying to make advances there. For example, I mentioned you know, back in the, the 50s when my mother and I were vegetarians, uh, it was, you know, the new 
you really couldn't go to a restaurant and get more than a grilled cheese sandwich, maybe. You know, that's not vegan, obviously. But uh, nowadays, there are lots of plant-based alternatives that you can have in a uh, Western European, American, North American kind of diet that uh, ease the, uh, the change you have to make to your dining habits and, and your getting together over a meal with people habits and so forth. Uh, and this is, you know, all along good. I don't try to put down people who uh, say, oh, well, you know, I need to have a substitute for the meat on my plate there. You know, what am I going to do if I don't have, you know, vegetable, potatoes and meat? Okay. And I say, well, if, you know, if we can give you this substitute, uh, how about that? You know, it eases it into it. Same thing with uh, experiments. You know, we've developed a lot of uh, techniques for doing scientific tests and experiments that can you know, be done in vitro instead of in vivo in the living animal. And especially as these are less expensive, then that's strong encouragement to aiding the animals in that area. That's something that we can practically do without encountering these massive cultural obstacles that are out there for other sorts of wholesale changes. I was been told, uh, one thing, I'm not a vegan, I'm pretty close to it. Uh, my wife and I enjoy cheese. I'm even told, well, there's this store in the town down the road here in Mendocino Village that has some really good vegan cheeses. I didn't even know they existed. Uh, so, you know, if we can find the... And those, you know, we can go buy those and substitute that for the, the cheese we get at, uh, at Costco or Safeway. Uh, we already drink almond milk, for example. I like almond milk, the soy milk better than, than cow's milk. Um, so if you can develop these alternatives so that people can make progress and maybe hopefully fewer animals suffer and die, because these alternatives are being used in, uh, in their place, then that's, I think, what can be done. And has the, I would be most optimistic, say, should we avoid the bomb, uh, be most optimistic about the course of the improvement of animals over coming generations. Yeah, thank you. And, and I, I agree. It's, in a way, it seems frustrating because in certain cultures around the world the ideas of veganism do seem to have more acceptance and more traction but it's not an, it's not as much more power as you might expect because one you know we have the clarity of the moral argument that i think intuitively many people agree with but just don't want to face up to but we also have the arguments around environment land use water use pollution zoonosis um, antimicrobial resistance, health concerns, you know, the list of reasons to essentially transition away from animal agriculture completely just gets stronger and stronger. But there are so many entrenched powerful forces, both in terms of industry, but as you said, just a sense of culture and identity and livelihood and practicalities of communities around the world whose lives are bound up with these systems. It, it makes it really hard to change. And I so I'd agree that in a sense... I think both on the consumption side, we've got to find ways of making it easier for people to do the right thing because we need to keep the moral pressure up, but it's a, that's a very, very slow process. Whereas if you can make it easy, cheap, you know, tasty, immediate, you know, it, it, to make a better moral decision with no downside, I think that can have a really positive impact on the consumers. But to your point, 
I think we also need to put much more effort into these just transitions for the impacted communities. And there are so many of them. As you said, there's the rancher in Dakota with a sort of multi-generation commitment to beef or dairy farming. You've got you know, fishing communities in Southeast Asia. You've got you know, everywhere around the world, there are different communities and industries that have different degrees of dependence on these systems. And I think every single one needs some compassionate thought and help to come up with practical plans for how we can help those communities and those industries and those organizations move to a you know, more ethical and more environmentally sound position. And in a sense, you know, it's almost a marker of the fact that maybe you know, we're winning the moral argument that we now need to get much more practical and actually start putting plans in place and say, right, this is how we're going to do it. You know, cut the subsidies, put the subsidies towards transition. You know, here are the paths you can follow to go from dairy farming to you know, something else. Um, yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's difficult to judge how, how that agenda is positioned at the moment because there are some positive factors, but there are also some challenges. And then you set that against the, you know, what otherwise might be seen as a good thing, that there are many countries that are developing and becoming wealthier. And of course, what happens as they become wealthier, they farm more, farm more animals. So even as it feels like you know, veganism maybe is making cultural progress in some parts of the world, the graphs of you know, the numbers of animals tortured and killed just keep going up for the moment. So yeah, it's, it's difficult to know how it will play out. But I, I agree, there's that sense of alternatives, making it easy and thinking about those transitions that are essential. Yeah. And also, you know, as you were bringing up the, uh, you know, uh, other concerns that are pointing in the same direction. I used to give uh, talks at the San Francisco Vegetarian Society every now and then. And the, it was a very, you know, active group. It was a very good group in the sense that, you know, they, they really did, uh, you know, work at vegetarianism, tried to, uh, you know, get out vegetarian menus and encourage people to go to vegetarian restaurants and all that sort of thing. One of the striking things about it, is, though, is that probably about at least three quarters, not 80% of them were health vegetarians. Yeah, they weren't doing it for sparing the animals. I mean, they were doing it in order that they would feel healthier. And I've known some people who say, well, yeah, that really doesn't count. And I, my mother would say that. <laughs> she saw it as a kind of purity issue, pure conscience issue, as Sartre might have said. Um, I, you know, for me, that's, that's great, you know? I encourage you to keep thinking, keep reading all those books that tell you that you're going to be healthier by not eating it. Because the more you believe that and the more you act on it, the better it is for the animals. And given how terribly we make animals suffer, it's just the tremendous, oh, just egregious. If we were, you know, beings coming here from Mars who had compassion, we would just be appalled, I would think, at what we human beings do to animals. So any, anything like worrying about your health or worrying about the environment or worrying about, you know, the cattle or uh, cows are burping out too much methane that's going to contribute to global warming, any of those things that count in the direction of uh, helping us be, treat animals better, giving all these obstacles that you mentioned uh, that are arrayed against doing that, so much the better. I want to encourage all of those that I can. 
Yeah, I think I agree. Right, what it, what are, whatever it takes, really. And I, and I think oh, similar to the experience you had with your own mother, I think once someone's shown that it's possible, shown that it's possible to do healthily, and once you've detached yourself from these systems, it's much. It's a little easier to look at them with a clear eye. And and I agree. You know, it's very difficult to step outside of the social norms we've grown up in that teach us animal agriculture is completely normal. But if you do that and you look at it with a fresh set of eyes. And particularly when you try and do what I think is the most basic thing in ethics, which is try to take the perspective of the victim and genuinely imagine what these processes and these systems are like, it, it becomes extremely clear. And the imperative, hopefully, is strong enough that will um, drive us in a more positive direction. But... The moral argument, is, I think you said earlier, has been won. Uh, people don't want to see that sometimes. People find all kinds of excuses for not uh, acknowledging the, the animal suffering. Animal suffer and accounts morally, but you know that argument is basically one, and you just have to at, at the level of the morals you have to pick off the various uh, nonsensical things that people uh, have to say. Like I remember I had a colleague once who said, "Well, uh, I believe consciousness has a particular." important value. And I said, what do you mean? Do you, you think animals are not conscious? Yeah. And you go from there. Anyway, I have to pick out these self-serving little um, refuges that the people pick out so they can enjoy their steak or whatever. Um, but uh, I think the more long-term fight is going to be on this practical. So, I mean, you know, you were saying, you know, about consumption, it's easy for us living in, who live in basically urban areas to say, well, you know, it's just a matter of getting the steak off the plate. But then you listen like this rancher, a uh, very sympathetic figure, you know, getting the steak off the plate means he gives up his whole life, the tradition of his family, going back generations. And how do you deal with that? Uh, I thought that was, you know, R.G. Fry, one of the uh, strongest uh, utilitarian opponents of, of animal liberation. That's an argument that he particularly stressed is just the cultural consequences of what you're talking about. And he thought that was an overwhelming, you know, negative that it couldn't be cannibalized. Well, I would hope it can be cannibalized. I'd like to be optimistic enough to think that we can rearrange our ways of life, not just way of life, but ways of life uh, across the whole range. Uh, but it's, it's a, it is definitely a serious problem and it has to be acknowledged. I agree. I agree. And when, when you mentioned the sort of pushbacks and the challenges that you, you've heard through your career, um, it reminds me of really the start of our conversation, because I think in a simple way, there are two responses to the imperative of non-human animal ethics. One is just to say, I don't care. You know, that's just an ethical choice to not care. <laughs> and we see people do that with groups of humans as well. Right? I just do not care. That's it. And in a, in a sense, that's the end of the conversation, right? They've just taken a choice. But a lot of the, a lot of the pushbacks bring us back to this naturalistic idea and that people will actually believe things that are false, scientifically false, to support the position they want to hold, i.e., you know, are you sure that animals aren't conscious. Well, here's all the scientific evidence that shows they are. And that's part of the idea behind trying to bring a naturalistic epistemology and a sentiocentric compassion together in this sentientism idea, because I think we need both. I think it's not enough just to have a sentiocentric compassion, and it's not enough just to have a naturalistic 
epistemology. I think you do need both because if either of those fail, I, terrible things can happen. So I think, you know, that's partly the idea behind trying to bring both of those things together and say, look, that's the platform that we should start from. But Yes, that was uh, you know, David uh, Hume's infamous phrase that uh, where you had the Kantians who thought that you could generate uh, values from pure practical reason. Hume said that reason is and ought to be the slave of passion. That if you don't have your your generous sentiments uh, strong or whatever, then your reason can just lead you totally astray. And you know, reason is not to generate ultimate values. Reason is to facilitate our getting to those generous values uh, efficiently. Yeah, I agree. And I, in a way, there are some people who think that if you start with a naturalistic understanding your sentiocentric compassion will flow from that automatically. Some people think that if you start from a sort of compassionate ethic and feeling that drives you to a naturalistic epistemology, because if you want to make the world better, you have to understand the world better. Other people see them as completely separate. And I'm sort of agnostic about it, but I still think we need both. However you think they relate, I think we need both. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh... You know, you can have misguided sentiments and so forth. The, I remember at uh, my university at one time, they, uh, there was a fellow there who was doing uh, experiments, behavioral experiments, with uh, seals. I thought he was just, you know, training circus seals, what it looked like to me, but this was done, you know, by a professor in the uh, biology department or whatever. Uh, so it was science in this case. But... He got a lot of complaints because the facility that he had there in the universe is not really expansive. And it's, oh, look at those seals. They're just poor things. They're all crowded into this little corner of this facility. They don't have room to spread out, whatever. And uh, uh, Professor Schusterman said, these people don't understand. That's the way seals sleep in the wild. You know, they they pile together they're group sleepers they don't want to spread out and have as much you know distance between them and the next seal as possible this i think he was using harbor seals that's that's their nature that's what they feel comfortable with and the people who were criticizing him for uh, having this facility which just wasn't big enough to give the seals a quality of life that was wrong yeah just factually wrong that was not the problem, there were problems with what he was doing, I mean, I mean, but uh, that was not one of them. And to go off and uh, attack him for this just made the attackers look bad. Made them look like, oh, these ignorant, uh, you know, do-gooders uh, don't yeah. even know what they're, they're, they're up to. And that's a danger in many of these areas. It's because a very dangerous thing to do. It discredits the whole movement. Yes, it does. You, you know, your motivation can be good. Your compassion can be strong. If you overstate your case or you, you use incorrect evidence or you warp evidence, it undermines your own credibility. Um, so even when you're thinking about the effectiveness of a, you know, of a, of a social justice or an animal justice campaign, uh, I think naturalism is an important element and too often we lose it. Steve, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me again. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation before we wrap up? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too. I'm, I'm, I guess the one thing I would say that my book is still out there. If people want to read it, 
as far as moral theory, I did write another one. Uh, it was not so well received. Uh, it didn't fall exactly stillborn from the presses, as you would say, but you know, didn't have much life in it. But anyway, it's called Subjective Morals, and it's still out there and develops the kind of moral theory that uh, I've been talking about today. Plus, I uh, recently got most all my articles together and put them on my website so people don't have to try to go to you know, the journal in which predation was originally published or the American Philosophical Association uh, journal or whatever. They can just go to stevesaponsis.com and uh, the articles are, are there. I think they're in pretty good shape. Sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the processing of them, I think, has led to some little issues. But, you know, if, if anybody has a problem, they can just email me and I'd be happy to continue the conversation with uh, anybody who'd like to continue. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely amazing body of work and it covers many of the things we've talked about today and much more. And to many of the people who are active in some of these fields today and think they're sort of on the radical cutting edge of topics like wild animal ethics or pluralistic approaches to ethics, I can refer them back to your books and point out that you got there first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah, it's been it's it's um it's been such a pleasure to talk to you because I think you're one of those seminal foundational voices in helping humanity expand our moral scope. Um it's a deeply important contribution. So thank you. And hopefully well, you know you. we'll all like we'll all keep pushing. I like to feel if I made it I always remember when I was teaching course in animal ethics once and I showed a film about uh, factory farming, I guess, a little film that was out. And I had this woman come up after uh, the end of the class, uh, a woman, uh, she was coming back to the college, maybe around 30 or so, early 30s. And she held up this brown paper bag and said, I'll have you know, I spent time, got up early today to make myself this chicken salad sandwich for lunch. And now I can't eat it. And she threw the bag in the garbage. And I thought, aha, today was productive. <laughs> Excellent. Mark one up, one more success. Yeah. Uh, no. Well, that's brilliant. And can, I think your series really an excellent series. I've listened to quite a few of them and really enjoyed them. I'm very pleased and honored to be included, included in the series. Well, it's an honor to add you to the roster. I've been uh, lucky to talk to some amazing people, and you are certainly one of them. So. Yeah, thank you. Well, take care, Steve. Stay in touch. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?